Welcome to Read Mama Lies Repeat. I'm Angie. And I'm Amberly. We're moms who love to read nonfiction books with a focus on self development, parenting, child development, and relationships. But we wanted to do more than just read the books. We wanted to talk about them. We want to mamalize. You're likely wondering what does it mean to mamalize? This made up word combines mom and socialize. It's a simple formula. We read, we mamalize, we repeat every other week. It's like a book club, except you decide when the meeting happens, and even if you want to read the book. With most episodes, we bring on a guest, therefore providing you three unique perspectives to the same book. With growth and connection as our core values, you can expect candid and sometimes vulnerable conversations. So let's get started. Welcome to Read Mama Lies Repeat. We're so happy to have Natalie Henning here today to talk to us about Dr. Becky Kennedy's book, Good Inside. Welcome, Natalie. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I'm so excited. We are so excited to have you here. Amberly and I both love this book, and we can't wait to have a conversation about how it has impacted your life and your stories. So can you tell our listeners just a little bit about your, your life, your family, and who you are? Absolutely. Um, So I am from Southern Wisconsin. I uh, have three children and a husband, um, which can be my fourth sometimes. (laughs) Um, No, but I have three kids ages eight, five, and uh, my youngest just turned two. And um, I am a nurse at um, a local hospital uh, clinic. I have a history in working in the birthing center, postpartum, and now I'm in pediatrics um, in a clinic. So um, a lot of experience with kids, but I definitely um, have my struggles just like any other parent out there. Um, so I really love this book. Um, I've been following Dr. Becky for a while on Instagram. Um, so I'm a, I'm a visual learner and I love seeing her videos um, on how to kind of approach situations in a maybe a different way than I was uh, kind of brought up with. And um, I just, I, I love it. And I love talking about it with patients and my trying to work through it with my own children. So um, yeah, it's just a little bit about me. Perfect. You brought something up. Sorry, Angie, I'm like cutting you off. You brought something up that I wondered if it would be worth kind of exploring before we really get into the book. And it was just kind of the difference between working with kids and being a parent, because all three of us work with kids on the regular. And so sometimes I think there's this impression that we have all of our ish together we like know everything that we're talking and and it's just I mean we were talking about this a little before we hit record that it's really different when you're parenting your own children I wonder if you want to kind of talk about that a little bit yeah I mean I think in all aspects not just um you know your your choice and your parenting technique but even just when my kids get sick you know I know what to tell patients but when it's my own kids Um, my anxiety kicks in, right? So when it comes to, um, you know, this type type of parenting, I can, I was just talking about this with a friend last night, actually, and how it's so easy to look at it from an outsider's perspective and say, oh yeah, that's, you do this technique and this one and this one, and you just kind of follow it along and it's so simple, right? But then when you're in the moment, um, you know, anxiety, nerves, you know, this loud sounds, all the stimulation, everything takes over and it's really hard to hear what's going on um, inside of their heads and inside of your head, right? So you tend to kind of forget those things in the moment. So I think 
it's important for listeners to know that, um, you know, even though all of us work with children every day um, and we're good at our jobs, we're also good at being a parent, but it, it's hard. It's hard in the moment you, everybody screws up, whether it's your pediatric nurse, your pediatrician, everybody, we all screw up. Nobody knows the right answers for everything. Um, our kids are all different. And so we approach them differently. And so I feel like it's just really important to remember that when you're feeling like you're in a low moment as a parent, that even though you feel like you're alone, it, the same thing is happening to those professionals who work with children every day. It doesn't make us on a different level than anybody else. We all struggle. Even Dr. Becky. Yes. I love that she says that in her book. I listened to the book on Audible. I didn't have the physical book, but she says that multiple times. And maybe I've also heard her share this on her Instagram. She doesn't always take her own advice mm -hmm. that her husband jokes like, well, is that how Dr. Becky would handle it? <laughs> like she has this other persona. And I think you hit it right on the head, Natalie, just that when you're in the moment, you can't look at it from that outside perspective because you're all the things going around and you have a different emotional attachment to your children than you do to students or patients. This conversation has me thinking about how we all have kind of our own neurobiology and our own um, just like life experience and the ways that we grew up and the things that that impacts in our nervous system and in our brain development and in the the things, the patterns that we tend to fall into when we are feeling threatened or when we're feeling unsafe as parents. I mean, I have definitely found that if I'm in a situation where I feel like my child is unsafe or my child, something is like threatening that relationship or is somehow threatening in a way that's related to my kiddo, the way that I respond like physiologically and in my brain, it, I mean, it's, it can be very um, primal. Yeah, it can be very primal and it can be just really intense and, and not logical, right? Like not rooted in logic, very much rooted in just like survival and all that kind of stuff. So mm -hmm. I'm glad that we kind of just brought that up so that we can come at this conversation from a place of understanding what parents actually go through, like on a very deep primal level. Mm -hmm. and um, just really have a lot of compassion around the conversation, right? So that we're never, and I think Dr. Becky does a great job of this too, that we're never talking about things around parenting in like a shaming way or in a, you know, you are failing your child if you do this, you know, X, Y, Z, whatever. It's her whole book is just giving us so much more information about children's brain development and they're uh, all of the different beautiful parts that they have and the way that that relates to us and our brain development and all of our beautiful parts and being able to just really come at that compassionately. So just all of that clarification, because I think it's really, really helpful. Yeah, I think, I think we do the best with, I was thinking about this uh, for later on, um, just talking about how different it might've been as our own upbringing and things, but how we do the best with what we have and I see that too in just my day-to-day -day practice at work. Um, you know, there might be a situation that maybe, you know, I'm a little concerned about in a parenting situation, but then I also kind of look at the whole picture and, you know, what somebody 
has for their resources, you know? And so I think it's just so great that Becky, Dr. Becky wrote this book because I mean, it's, it's accessible, um, it's teachable and it's just, it it can be broken down so simply, you know? Yeah. Yeah. When you were saying before about shame, Amberly, that word comes up a lot. It's, I think it's come up in almost all of our episodes that we've recorded so far, but that's always uh, one of my fears when I talk about parenting, whether it's in my kinder music classes or on Instagram, is that I want to be able to share this information that I've learned through books like Dr. Becky's book. And I don't, I never want someone to feel shameful mm-hmm. because that's not how they've done things. So I know we're circling back to the same idea, but just it's important mm-hmm. that listeners know that <laughs> we, we are not perfect parents and that we've all made, wish we could go back and do things differently. Mm-hmm. And even in the moment when we have all the information and we mm-hmm. still make a choice that we wish we wouldn't have and respond in a way we, we wish we wouldn't have. So, and maybe that's a nice segue into one of the questions we wanted to talk about was that if you could go back in time <laughs> and change a parenting moment, what would it be? This is, we're getting vulnerable right See, away. I have, I have plenty of moments, but I, <laughs> um, I, I, I did write a few down. So I'm referring to my notes, but, um, right. you know, I know one thing that I used to do, which I'm trying to be so mindful of. Um, and I think we do this out of a place of like, we think we're trying to teach our kids, um, compassion and things, but it kind of backfires is, um, you know, oh, that makes mommy so sad. Please don't do that. That makes mommy sad. And it's putting, you know, I learned from the book then, you know, that that is putting uh, the responsibility on our kids to be responsible for our adult feelings. And so that was really powerful for me. Um, cause I, I know in the past I've done that. I've had family members, you know, do it for my kids. Not in a, not in a mean way, you know, they're trying to teach them like, oh, that's not a nice thing to do. That hurt my feelings. But and there's, there's ways to go about it, but yeah, that really made me think a lot about the, you know, the circuitry of that. And that's a pretty simple, like once you're aware of that, that's a pretty simple thing to switch in just how you present that information. Because I agree, I think it's important for kids to realize that their actions can affect other people. And right. me, but then framing it as, instead of saying, you hurt my feelings, mm-hmm. right? It's I, I am sad because of this that happened, right? Amberly, is that a, is that a, is that a better way to reframe that sort of situation? Therapist, almost therapist, um, Amberly, almost therapist. <laughs> In all of my, all of my eight months of wisdom as a therapist. Um, yeah. So, so like Natalie said, it's all about wanting to take the responsibility for an adult's emotions off of a kid and back onto an adult. I think as adults, it's okay to express emotion in front of children. And it's it, to an extent, I would say, like there need to be some pretty clear boundaries around what is a parent's to hold and what is a kid's and really keeping in mind the role of, you know, who is the adult in this situation and who is the child and what are children capable of emotionally versus what are adults capable of emotionally And I say that fully recognizing that there are a lot of adults who are not super capable emotionally for a lot of reasons, right? But 
really remembering like a parent's emotions is not a child's responsibility ever because that can just cause so many issues for kiddos as they're growing up and remembering that their brains are constantly being wired, especially I'm leaning a lot into what Dr. Becky talks about with attachment. Children are wired for attachment to their caregivers, to their parents. And so if it becomes a matter of there's this internalization of I have to manage my parents' feelings in order to stay close and attached to them, that just gets things really confusing. I won't share specifics about clients, but I work with clients who we call it parentified, like a kid has become sort of parentified where they're sharing in the burden of um, the emotional responses of parents. And it can cause a lot of a lot of really difficult things as those kids grow up. Yeah. Even at a base level, we're sort of wiring kids in that way to be both intense people pleasers and constantly reading people for their emotions, right? Mm -hmm. And needing to like maybe anticipate people's feelings and... Yes, one other thing that uh, just came to mind that's happening for kids is that when we're presenting this dynamic of you're making mommy sad or whatever, right? What's also happening for a kid is that they look at a parent as maybe not a safe person Mm -hmm. because they see that their parent can't manage their own self without the help of the child. And that also makes things very confusing for kids, you know, talking about all of that, but then going back to what we were saying before with like the shame, you know, I'm just thinking like if anyone listening to this or even hear us now if we're kind of going into that place of like, oh my gosh, I've done this. I've ruined my child forever. You know, let's, let's go ahead and pause that. Yeah. Let's, let's remember that that's not true. And that is one of the other big premises of this book, right? Is that it's not irreparable. Like she talks so much about repair and that is so wonderful and so beautiful. And it's so true. And every time we repair, we are also wiring their brains for connection and for um, just kind of that, oh, for resilience. We're we're rewiring their brain for connection and resilience. And that is fantastic. That's such a great way to look at that. And I, yeah, I, I, that was one of my big takeaways too, was just the repair part of it, because we're all going to screw up. I mean, like she said, she screws up herself. And so just knowing that you can repair and that not saying that that fixes everything, but it, it, it is, it's a good feeling. Cause I've had a couple friends, actually, I, I told them I was reading the book and they said, Oh, I want to read that too. But it's just, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to feel like I'm screwing up or I'm just not, I'm like, no, you have to read it because she says the, she addresses that. She says the complete opposite of, you know, you, you can repair and everybody screws up. Um, it reminded me too of this week, how I don't know if you saw, but Marie Kondo came out with saying that even she is struggling with tidying up and that was her big thing. And she's got three kids now. And so it's like all these gurus, um, we all screw up in, in these, these areas that we're supposed to be, you know, professionals in, because that's human nature. That's, it's normal. So we can't put so. I think that there's so much pressure 
in our generation as parents, um, because we have so much information coming at us from every angle. Um, and so it's really easy to put a spotlight on ourselves, but the repair part really stuck with me. And I love how she says that the repair can happen a minute after, 10 minutes after, 10 years Mm -hmm. after, right? So it's, it's not too late. She says that a lot too, in the book, it's not too late, you know, even years beyond. And I would think, you know, maybe your children, Natalie, don't remember. I mean, again, we're just kind of sticking with this example. Maybe they don't remember you saying that to them, but their brain might remember, right? The wiring might be there. So by you coming back to them potentially and saying, you know, I said this in the past and I've learned some information and here's how I'm going to phrase it moving forward, right? Like maybe there's a little rewiring that happens. Yeah. And that, that can apply to like any parenting situation, not just this, of course. Absolutely. Yeah. I was going to say, even maybe potentially thinking about the potential impact and coming to them and saying something like, you know, I just really want you to know that I, I am in control of my own emotions or like, mommy, you don't have to worry about how mom feels about things, right? Like without even talking about the specifics, you can always kind of go back. But then also talking about the repair you kind of reminded me. So it's kind of ironic. I'm sitting in my parents' house right now because I'm visiting family. Um, So I'm sitting in my parents' house while we're recording this episode. And my mom is a teacher and she's been a teacher for a really long time. And she is very uh, interested in learning new information as she has gone through all of her trainings. And she also has found Dr. Becky Kennedy actually separately from me. Like we both kind of found her and then realized that we both were aware of her as she has learned significantly new and more information about parenting and about children and all these things, we have had some of those opportunities for a little bit of repair where maybe she's kind of acknowledged, like not, I would never say that my parents did anything egregious, like at all. They, like you were saying before, Natalie, they were doing a really good job with the information that they had back in the nineties, which was much more limited than what we have now. Um, but we had many conversations that I would consider to have been very just like healing and repairing as far as the acknowledgement of my parents with saying things like, you know, I wish that maybe I had done this differently. And as an adult child, I was surprised at how meaningful that has been and how much our relationship has shifted and um, evolved into this, you know, like just a little bit more healthy, a little bit more healthy. And that's a really beautiful thing. So I appreciate that a lot. That's amazing, Amberly, that you've been able to have those conversations with her. That part of the book, I'm like tearing up now thinking about it. That totally got to me. It really did. So I think it's so lovely that you've had that opportunity. Yeah. Well, and I have been in my own personal therapy for a long time, kind of undoing certain messages around perfectionism and motherhood that we've talked about in previous episodes. But Honestly, I I feel like my therapist was working really hard on me for like probably almost a year of like helping me understand this message complete, like just this message of repair where, because I used to feel very like fatalist of like, if I make one mistake with my kids, I am going to screw them up forever, right? From this one little thing, I'm going to screw them up. And speaking of that, I have an experience to share if you want me to kind of share something that I wish I had done differently. Yes, please. And it it is, yeah, it's it's actually a funny story that I tell now 
and it's hilarious, but it speaks a lot to what was going on at the time. So my first two kids are about 20 months apart. Uh, I was a full-time stay-at-home mom for quite a while. My husband was working, you know, full-time in his first job after college. And so was gone a lot. And it was just like so intense. And I was in such survival mode. The first winter after my second baby was born, it was cold and we couldn't go anywhere. And it was, I was just like in a bad mental state. And I was saying the F word so much, just like kind of explosively. And at this point, my oldest had just turned two. And there was a time that I was just getting frustrated with everything constantly, constant frustration. And there was a time that I was trying to get him into his car seat and he was fighting me on getting into his car seat. And I didn't even actually say an F word this time, but I just was like frustrated. And I said, oh, just get into your car seat. And he just started sobbing and he just said, I don't want to get in my fucking car seat. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love that. And it was one of those moments, right? Where I was like, Ooh, I need to make some changes. Like (laughs) I can see what's happening here. And I was devastated. I felt horrible, you know, like that shame spiral, all these things and have since like, you know, recovered from that. And now I can tell it as a funny story, but uh, it definitely was one of those things where if you're thinking about the, the premise of this book as like behavior is information for something else going on underneath, my son was having something else going on underneath when he was fighting me, getting into his car seat, right? He didn't want to get in the car seat. Maybe he was feeling out of control and I was trying to force him into his car seat. Maybe he was feeling disconnected from me. Like there are all kinds of things. And also there was something else deep going on inside of me that my response to him was what it was, right? And so being able to take that as information and you know, apologize, repair, whatever, and move forward and change and heal that is so, it's so powerful. So I wish I had handled that differently, obviously in the past when he was two, but also it is a really funny story. So (laughs) we got something, you know, okay out of it, I guess. No, but you, I think when you got into the part about perfectionism and I'll be honest, I just finished the book this morning. So (laughs) I just read, um, she was talking a lot about perfectionism and I do, my oldest has a lot of perfectionist tendencies. So I was really interested in that part. And I love how she, cause this is just another simple way to bring it in because in my head, I'm always like, Oh, how am I going to help him out of this? But she's like, you don't, you don't help them out of it. I love how she said you, you know, kind of talk to them and say, okay, you have like this, per, what did she call it? A perfection voice or perfect voice or perfect so-and-so perfect girl. Like if you have a perfect girl inside of you, that's okay to have that perfect girl, but you just can't let her talk over your other people inside of you kind of talking about, um, well, what is it called? Amberly, the inter IFS. IFS. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she she actually talked about that in, um, Lennon Doyle's podcast, which I have to finish, but she started talking about that, but that's neither here nor there, but Oh, it is here and there. It is here and there, but (laughs) but just talking about, yeah, you, it's okay to have those perfectionist tendencies. I think I, I saw that like my my dad, I mean, we're all very open about it, but my dad's very much a perfectionist and I have some of those tendencies and now my son does, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just, we can't let it overpower 
the rest of our voice, you know, and saying it's okay to struggle. It's okay to not always win. Um, Cause that's a big thing with sports right now. He wants to win everything. So we're working on it, but um, that made me feel so good to read that. I love when she talks about IFS stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of leads into a little bit of my, my example of a parenting moment. I wish I could go back and it's in the grand scheme of things. I think it's a very, small moment, but I know it happened multiple times, especially when my oldest Finley was a toddler and through her preschool years. And it tended to happen with art, working on whether it was coloring or making some kind of craft. And I just have this visual of her sitting at our island working on something and it gets to a point where it's not going the way she wants it to. And she's frustrated because it's getting challenging. And I know so many times I gave her the message, well, just stop. It's not fun anymore. Like, why do you, why do you want to keep doing it? Like, you're not having fun. Like, just stop and do something else. I mean, that was basically what I said. Uh, (laughs) And I think now looking back, I'm like, oh man, like I missed the opportunity to help her build that muscle of resilience, right? And to give her the messaging that yeah, it is hard. Oh, I see what you're trying to do. It's so tricky, you know, and then asking those maybe leading questions, right? And I'm not saying this now, like I'm not shaming myself and it's not something that I'm necessarily like losing sleep over, but I can recognize it as a moment and say, ugh, yep, that I could have done that better. And I didn't, again, one of those moments, I didn't have this information at that point in my parenting journey. I'm sure I have read, at that point, I think I had read some parenting books, but not anything that focused on resilience. Yeah, it's, I, I think that's just such a common thing, though. Like you said, it's like we didn't have this information. I feel like this is all still very new, um, and we can, can we can make changes now and just validate what happened in the past. And it's not anything bad. You didn't do anything wrong as a parent, you know, you and, and, you know, a lot of people wouldn't see it as that you did anything, you know, wrong right. or anything, even now knowing what we know, but um, it's just, it's, I always tell my patients too, when they are struggling with like anything, you know, I just say, you know, or I, I'm a breastfeeding counselor. So I will do a lot of breastfeeding stuff, um, lactation consults and things. And so I, you know, I have a lot of moms that get down on themselves about, um, you know, not being able to fully breastfeed or having to supplement and things like that. And, you know, I always like validate their concerns, try and figure out exactly what they want and try and help them achieve that. But then I also kind of bring it back to, you know, do you love your baby? Do you feed your baby? Yes. Yes. Right. Okay, great. You're doing the best job possible. Like it, it really, it's not, I think we get so hard on ourselves, but, um, I think just remembering, okay, I'm trying and that's what matters. Um, the fact that you're just trying is, um, it speaks volumes and it shows that you love and care about your children. So I just think we can't get so down on ourselves for past things, but it is good to acknowledge it. Right. She doesn't talk about this phrase in good inside, but intensive mothering. That's a phrase I feel like I've been hearing Mm -hmm. a little bit more often. And I'll be fully honest, I definitely, I was a stay-at-home parent for, I still kind of am, but I have a job still, but I was a stay-at-home parent fully for five, six years. And I think I did really treat motherhood like it, it, it was my job. And of course, mm-hmm. being a parent is a job, whether it's your 
job of the home or if you work outside of home, right? Being a parent is hard work. I don't know. I guess I struggle with the line between intensive parenting and just finding these topics and these books really fascinating and wanting to learn more both for myself and for my children and my family. So I had a couple of thoughts while you were talking, Angie, and the one one of them is that phrase of like, it's so tricky, right? You were talking about how maybe you kind of wish that you had used that in the past. But honestly, I love that phrase. When she put it out there, I was like, oh, that's so good. And my husband and I have both been using that a lot since reading this or listening to this book. I heard about Dr. Becky. I'd known about her for a while. Oh, I listened to her on a different podcast, actually on a politics podcast, which was very fascinating. And after I listened to that podcast, I immediately got her book on Audible. And then I went to my husband and said, please listen to this. I'm listening to it too. And then we can kind of have some common language to talk about things. Uh, And kind of as we're constantly trying to evolve our parenting together. And that's been awesome. And so that's something that he uses even more than I do is the like, oh, something about this is really tricky for you. Or your this feeling is really tricky. And, and it's just, or even things like my toddler, while I was listening to this book, he was going through this really intense phase where he wasn't sleeping through the night again. And he was just like waking up a lot. And it was extremely frustrating because sleep, right? Because I was listening to this book, I was handling it very differently than maybe I would have. And I just kept thinking to myself, like, and saying it to him, even something about sleeping is really tricky right now. Something about sleep is really tricky. <laughs> it was almost like helped me hold on to kind of my normal sense of calm and rootedness in the fact that like, I'm the parent, I'm the adult, I can maintain my own, I can regulate my own stuff. Something about that phrase for me, it just like clicked in really good ways. Yeah. And I think that it, that that's what I love about the book too, is that it, it can seem overwhelming as you're getting into it and reading what all the chapters contain, but it breaks it down to things like that. This is so tricky. And I think, um, I think when we think about parenting books, I have a friend that says, oh, I'm so hesitant to read parenting books just because it feels like I'm just not in the mood to take in all that information, but I want to, but I don't. Um, and I think this one, you can really break it down to like connection and validation. So like when you don't know what to do and your kid is spiraling, I mean, sometimes I, I just, I'm like, I don't know where to start, but I wrote down, you know, connection and validation. Like it doesn't have to be hard and it doesn't have to be overthought, but just breaking down the situation that's in front of you. And she talks a lot about jumping into it versus trying to get away. Um, so I know like, like I have my middle child, um, he's high sensory seeking, um, and just, everything is just can be just oh so much right and so when he gets into those where he's kind of doing like the screaming crying not just crying but like screaming crying and my insides are also screaming um you know this happened the other night with dinner and he didn't want to eat you know what what we had and I you know just talking about kind of jumping into the situation versus like okay go sit down then I can't take this right now like and I've done that before I've definitely done that before but um, just kind of getting in there saying, I hear you, I see you're frustrated. And sometimes with him, I just give him like a hug because he he's a cuddler and I just don't say anything and let him kind of just like take that moment and he will slowly kind of calm and he knows that I'm there. And so I don't think it has to be overcomplicated. And I think that's what scares people away sometimes from this type of parenting. It really can be quite simple. 
I like the example she gave where she flipped it and with the the parent that got so frustrated and threw the box of cereal when she said, you know, if that the partner of that person came in and, and said, how could you throw that cereal? You know better, right? Like if you f- reframe it that way, you're like, oh, yeah. Like, why would I say that to my, my kid does know better, but their brain was freaking out in the moment. Yeah. And they don't have, they don't have the impulse control. You know, I have to remind myself of that with my kids too. I am 35 years old. I have control. <laughs> they are eight, five, and two. They do not, you know, and so they're still learning that. So it's very easy for us to try and want them to act like an adult, but they're, they're just not. That's hard though, right? Because in the moment you feel like, oh, I need to teach them this lesson or they tell them what they did that they shouldn't do. And, but I've learned that even if you say all those words, nothing is getting in, right? Their brain is not open to taking in information. They, we need exactly what you said, Natalie. They need connection and validation. And that might be a hug, a shoulder squeeze and just saying, I see you, I hear you. It's so easy, but it's so hard to do in the moment. Yes, exactly. And your kids are like, I didn't, I don't know about you, Amberly, talking about the age groups that you have as well, but like my oldest loves quiet, being alone, doesn't, not a hugger. You know, my middle is this, you know, cuddly hugger. Oh, and then my youngest, she's just kind of wild and does everything. But, um, you know, and so with my oldest, I have to kind of like, initially give him space and then we come together um, and kind of like talk about it afterwards whereas my middle it's like he needs that that oh that sensory that hug that touch you know he needs all that right away so it's taken me this long like really just up until this year to figure that out that my oldest (laughs) I'm a hugger my oldest is not (laughs) give him the space don't over talk you know and it took me eight years to figure that out with him And that his love language is playing games. I just figured that out this year, (laughs) you know? So it's like, it it takes time, you know, and everything's repairable. Amberly, would you say your three are, I was, I thought I'm like, I know all of Amberly's children and I'm like, yep, yep, that sounds just like her three. It sounds exactly like my three. So so validating. It's so funny. Well, I think it's very common. Your oldest child, I I mean, I'm not trying to generalize kids at all. You know, I'm a typical middle child, you know, as they say, but um, your, your oldest child, I think, yeah, they, they just, they take on some more responsibility, you know, and it's just kind of, I think there, I'm sure there's been plenty of studies done on oldest versus youngest versus mm-hmm. how they, they manage. And I'm sure Amberly, you can talk more about that, but I just, I find it fascinating how, how different they are. And they all came from my body. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it's so it is really interesting. Um, something else that's kind of been coming up for me as we've been talking about this that I think is really interesting. The premise of the book, I mean, it's all encapsulated in the title, Good Inside. Mm-hmm. And it's all meant to talk about how kids are good inside and everyone, but like mm-hmm. we're specifically focusing on children. But something that I've been noticing in this conversation is that we have been really leaning into um, tapping into our own as parents, goodness inside and being able to kind of process through, you know, things that we've done that we didn't feel great about, but then acknowledging, like, I'm still good inside. Like I'm still a good parent. And 
I am, it is, I am worthy of the repair. I am worthy of the relationship with my kids. I am worthy of continuing to put one foot in front of the other and try again and again, as opposed to sometimes that shame spiral, which can take us away from connection and validation, like what you were just talking about. So I just thought that that was kind of beautiful that I wasn't expecting that, you know, we have to really lean into our own and acknowledge our own goodness and worthiness, regardless of all of the many, many mistakes that we make Mm -hmm. in order to show up for our kids in this way and see them in their goodness and their deserving of connection with us. They, they deserve to make mistakes and to still be loved. You know, they deserve to, that's how they grow. We make mistakes all the time. Well, thank you for my free therapy session today. <laughs> that's been wonderful. <laughs> thank you. No, that would we'll be sending you a bell. Yes, I know. <laughs> oh, that, it's so, you almost made me tear up there. It just, it's, it's so true. Just, and, and how you said, you know, I am worthy of this. And, and that's another thing Dr. Becky talks about is using mantras for um, not only your kids, but yourself, like just remind yourself, have that mantra of it's okay. I can repair. I am worthy. I am a good mom. I'm a good dad, you know? And just think how powerful for your children, for their future relationships, mm-hmm. right? Both for their own, se- well, and for their sense of self and mm-hmm. for the relationships they have, friendships, romantic relationships, you know, a relationship has bumpy moments, but you can repair. Yeah. I love that you said that too, Angie, because honestly, if there was a couple, like if I were to see a couple that, you know, said we never fight, like we never have to apologize because we never fight about anything or whatever. So many red flags would be going off for me in that moment because healthy relationships are two people, two whole complete people navigating life together. And you're not always going to see the same way every single time. And there are going to be, like you said, those bumpy moments and the moments of disagreement or moments where some of our old stuff comes up and maybe some of our wounded parts kind of show their face and the, the really good, strong, healthy relationships are able to process those and come back together and repair, right? And then that is how you build a resilient relationship. So it really is, it really is that kind of simple and yet it doesn't feel easy. It takes a lot of hard work. So we've talked a lot about mindset stuff so far and I thought it'd be interesting to get into maybe some of her more practical strategies, maybe even for reestablishing connection. Do either of you want to start with something maybe very specific that you have tried with your children and whether it has been successful or just not the right one for them? Yeah, I mean, I wrote a few down too, because some of them I had been doing just from watching her Instagram for a while. But then as reading the book, the one that stuck out to me, that's actually, I love it, which because I'm a cuddly person, but the love tank one or filling me up kind of one. And it's funny because I talked about my oldest not being a hugger and, and I never, again, never want to force that on, you know, say give mom a hug. Like she talks about that in the book too, but you know, I, I did it with my middle one at first to say, you know, he was kind of feeling frustrated and I said, is your love tank full? Do you have enough of mom in your love tank or do you need some more? He goes, 
I need more. <laughs> so I gave him a hug and he's I'm like, okay, do you need more? And he's like a little bit more. And like, you know, squeeze, squeeze. It is just kind of like a fun, silly thing. Well, then Hank, my oldest saw that. And so I said, what about you, Hank? Do you, are you feeling okay? Or do you feel like you need a fill up? And he's like, uh, and he's like laughing, kind of giggling about it. I'm like, okay, do you want to fill up? And he said, yeah. And so we, we did that. And so we do it a couple of times a week now. And it's just, it's fun. Like, it's just silly. And she talks about being silly in the book. And my, that's something my husband does really well with my kids is like when they're out of control or, you know, feeling dysregulated and it's just chaos where I, he can see me getting like tense and like, oh my gosh, I'm going to blow up, you know, and, and he'll just start being silly. And then they, they just, they just laugh and they just totally get into a new groove. Um, so he's really good about that. Whereas I really need to like, think about it a little bit more, but, um, and I think that might just be just our personalities in general, but, um, yeah. So the, the, she talks about, yeah, just playing the fill up game or that's the exact same one I was hoping oh. I was wanting to bring up. Uh, <laughs> So I only have two two kids and my youngest is sounds similar to both of your middle children. She's very physical. She not necessarily like maybe sensory seeking, but just wanting to always she loves to touch and she loves and she always has been. And I wore her as a baby all the time. So my husband will be like, you did this <laughs> in a joking way. And maybe that's true. And maybe it's also just part of who she is, maybe a little nurture and nature in there. But she has really big feelings a lot. Sometimes when she has really big feelings, I want to push away. I, I, I don't want to be around. Like it's uncomfortable, but I'm leaning into not trying to make those feelings go away. And I think connecting with her in those big moments is what she needs. And so the love tank helps with that, both in the moments and just in general. I love her phrase of, emotional vaccination and i think a little bit it's it's kind of one of those like emotional vaccination right like you even said it natalie like a love tank right and you're taking you're depositing into the love tank and you're withdrawing from the love tank yeah that has worked well with harlow and i honestly my oldest also is not much of a hugger and i haven't tried it with her but now i'm thinking i should even though she's not necessarily maybe asking for it or maybe she would behave similarly to your this son natalie like be like funny oh. and playful and yeah you know. and she's nine and a half <laughs> she's a little older but i don't think that should deter me from trying it with her what about you amberly um we haven't done the specific the love tank too much but one thing that both my husband and i have started doing a lot more of is the the phrase that she'll use or that strategy strategy she uses did i ever tell you about strategy and, and I love that so much because it feels a lot less luxury and a lot more connective, right? So we've done that quite a lot where we're like, did I ever tell you about the time that I was about your age and Grammy made me, you know, whatever. And I was so mad, you know, like we kind of that little script that she's used. Honestly, I've even done it with things that like did not actually happen in my childhood, but that kind of like created like a little story to parallel and my oldest especially is very like cerebral and he does a lot of reading and like storytelling in his mind. And so for him, a lot of the time I can see when things will shift for him, where he is like almost like writing a story in his mind about something. And then we can kind of help him through, through this strategy to sort of shift 
And then I can see the point where that story will start to go in a different direction for him. It's powerful because a lot of the stories that kind of get created in our minds, especially as kids, can become how we shape reality or how we perceive reality, right? Mm -hmm. And so being able to help him kind of do some of that rewriting has been really fun. But then also the way that they engage with us in those moments, as opposed to you shouldn't be punching your brother in the stomach. And it's a very different thing to say, did I ever tell you about when I was little and I didn't realize that if I actually did this to my sibling, that it would actually really hurt, you know, Mm -hmm. that's been a thing going on at our house lately. They're starting to figure out Mm -hmm. things with those physical boundaries. And it's, you know, paralleling with some of like the video games that they see or things that they see on TV where it's like, in the game, nothing happens. Like there's no consequence. But in real life, when you punch your brother in the stomach, it hurts him. <laughs> He's gonna start crying. And anyway, so my initial response tends to want to be like a, don't do that. Like, why are you doing that? You know, like big response. Finding that moment of connection later and using that phrase, I have found to be a really great strategy for our family. Yes, I love that one. I just a few weeks ago, my son was struggling with um, he when it comes to sports, he's very doesn't like to lose. And so we're working through that. Um, and I kind of brought that up to him. I said, you know, I remember when I was in high school and in track and, you know, so I kind of brought it in and kind of just gave him, I think, leaving space for them. I kind of give the information and then we just kind of chill, leave the space. Then he'll be like, well, actually, yeah, you know, and he'll start getting more deep because it takes him a while to open up. But I think that's a great way to open up conversation too. Amberly, what you were talking about reality and the stories that shape who we are. Another part of the book was she talks about acknowledging a situation as real and has that happened the way that they saw it happening. And this happened two months ago, maybe the girls and I were at Target and we were at a different Target than we normally go to. And they were very excited to go pick out a birthday present for someone. And so I'm walking and I'm on the phone with my sister at the time and they kind of both run off. And I wrap up my conversation with my sister and a minute later, I'm kind of in the area and I don't see them. And so I start walking towards the toy section because that's where I figured they were. And at this point, probably from the time they left me until I start trying to find them, it's maybe been, I don't know, two minutes, maybe three minutes. So I'm walking there and down one of like the big middle aisles, I see Harlow by herself and I call her name and she comes around running to me. And then we walk to the toy section and we find Finley. Harlow tells me, and she wasn't crying, but she's like, that was scary. I didn't know where you were. And and I've talked with my girls many, many, many times that if you ever cannot find me, I want you to find a grown up that has children and ask for help. That's we or if you're at a store and you see someone that works at the store you can ask like those are two safe people to go to it didn't get to that point with either of them that they felt the need to do that and later that night and we're in bed and and i thought of what dr becky had said that it's important to validate the experience for what it was because sometimes they're just processing it and thinking about it and questioning oh did this happen the way i thought it did and so i brought it up to harlow and saying you know, that was, that was pretty scary when we couldn't find each other for a couple minutes. And she's like, yes, it was. And it was just this moment of like, 
you know, like the softening, the, the exhale of, yes, that was scary. And I think it was, I wouldn't have done that if I hadn't read this book. And I think that's a very universal experience to be lost from your parents. That's, that happens probably to almost everyone. And I think a lot of us probably can remember it from our childhood too, of that moment of being like feeling scared and helpless and lost. I love that I was able to do that and kind of, again, close that loop for Harlow. And Finley, I don't think Finley was fine. <laughs> she was like, whatever. I made it to the toys section and I knew you'd come. <laughs> but Harlow didn't have that. That's awesome because it, like, it was right before bed and she was able to release that. So she wasn't worried about it, trying to go to sleep and probably yeah. sleeping well, you know. So it's just like it, it has this cascade of effects, you know. Right. I've used that strategy with other moments too, not as maybe, I mean, I wouldn't say that's traumatic, but not as traumatic as that. Just say like, yeah, that happened, right? You saw that and that's actually what happened. So they don't have that self-doubt yeah, or self-blame. And you're validating their experience. Like that is how she experienced it. And I think you're also speaking to the fact that we all experience every single person can experience the same exact event very differently having a good understanding of that is so helpful for just being able to relate to other people in with compassion (laughs) because you know when you're looking at like I'm thinking about this specific situation that you're talking about with um, getting lost and your oldest was just kind of like this was a non-issue this was like a non-event right Mm -hmm. it didn't affect her and that's fine that was her experience but then for your youngest, that it was, that it was very meaningful and it had a lot of meaning and, and being able to validate, you know, both of those experiences are true. Those both happened, mm-hmm. even though they're two different perceptions of the same event. And now you have my like trauma therapist brain going off <laughs> about just the way that people experience traumatic events. Cause I also heard you say like, eh, I wouldn't even, you know, classify this as traumatic, but that's kind of something where, however, a person perceives an experience because of a million different factors one event may have been considered extremely traumatic for one person and you know a non-issue for another person right and so then that's allowed when we can look at it that way that's allowing us the space to you know believe people when they talk about their trauma or talk about their experiences that have really impacted them and not be dismissive right like it's and it's, it, it's a simple, easy thing to do to validate, right? Like you were really scared when you, when you can find me at Target, we were visiting my husband's parents. They live in Alabama on like, a, they live on like 10 acres. My husband's dad has this big, like a giant driving lawnmower tractor thing. Like a gator. Yeah. And he had my two oldest on the tractor thing with him and they were helping him like mow the lawn. And I went out there and I was taking some pictures of them on it. And my father-in-law like drove it up close to me and then kind of like swerved around me, whatever, not a big deal. But my middle son thought, genuinely believed in his mind that my father-in-law was going to run me over with the tractor. And he was so upset about it afterwards. And so I'm thinking about that. That's kind of, it would be so easy to just be very dismissive of that and be like, grandpa would never do that. Like, no that would never happen. That's true. (laughs) Obviously grandpa would never actually run over me with the tractor, but 
the perception that he was having of this moment and being able to just literally say to him, you thought that grandpa was going to run me over. And that was really scary. You felt really sad. He was like, yeah, I felt really sad. And then to be able to ask the question, right? Do you think grandpa would ever run me over with the tractor? After having that validation and that connection, and then asking the question in that way, which turns on the rational thinking part of his brain, and then be is able to kind of wire that as like a, oh, yeah, that kind of restructures the way that he interpreted that event. Oh, that's so good. That's maybe one part that I didn't do with this situation. Like, I think I, I did a good job of validating Harlow's, her experience, but I don't know if I flipped it with the question after. And I don't think you always have to. Sure. Right. Natalie, I know earlier you mentioned Dr. Becky's chapter about food struggles. Do you want to get into that with your family and yeah, how this book yeah. has helped? This is something that has been a little bit of a struggle for a while with our family, but then also working as a pediatric nurse. I think all families struggle with this. And actually one of the providers I work with, who's also my kid's pediatrician, she always recommends. And then when it came out in the book, I was like, oh my God. Um, but the Ellen Satter Institute um, and the Division of Responsibility, and that's what we teach our patients too. And I think it really helps to simplify things for parents. Um, and I found myself, so I just read that part of the book this morning. And I did this the other night with my kid be, just because I you know, worked with my pediatrician about it. But um, the other night I had made, my husband brought all my kids home and I was already home and I had uh, like a healthy, but really good dinner. It was like a curry chicken, but not too curry-ish, you know, over some rice. And I thought it was delicious and it was healthy. And so I had it all ready to go. And I knew when the kids walked in the door, they were going to be like, what is that? You know, <laughs> cause they do that to me all the time. <laughs> and I'm sure many people can relate to that. Um, so of course my middle one, who's my usual one that's worried about what's for dinner. Um, you know, he came in and he was like, oh, I don't want that. And just like, oh, you know, kind of complaining about it. And initially my first thought was like, oh, you know, and in the book, she talks a lot about, it is not your job to feel like your worth as a parent is dependent on whether your kid eats their carrots. Right. And so I had, what I did in the moment was, you know, he sat down, he was kind of upset about it. It's like, okay, I get it, but here's, this is what's for dinner. And so Ellen Satter, um, they talk about, you know, the division of responsibility, which is you offer the food, you, you choose the type of food when you're eating it and where you're eating it. That's your job as a parent. And that's it. The kid's job is to decide how much they're going to eat and, um, you know, when, when they eat it. And so I did tell them, cause I don't normally have much for dessert ever, but I had gotten cupcakes that day. So I said, Hey, yeah, I've got dinner here. And then I've got some dessert. And of course my middle's like, I want the dessert, you know, and like throwing a fit about it. And so, you know, I said, okay, I was thinking about, you know, the division of responsibility. And so I said, okay. So I, I put his food out that I made him. And then I put the cupcake out right next to it. I said, well, you can decide this is what's for dinner tonight. And then this is the dessert. And if you want to eat it, go ahead. And if you need to come back, you can, but this is what's, what's there and what's available. And if you're hungry later, I'll leave it out and you can, you can come get it. So he walked away for a minute and then he came back and he started eating like little bits of the cupcake and he didn't finish the cupcake. And then he went and he was like, can I have a little of the, cause I had like a little bit of 
the juice from all the chicken and everything. So can you put a little bit of that on there? And so I did. And then he slowly started eating it and then he ate like three fourths of the meal, but it was without me forcing it because he just, I think, as we know now, kids want a little bit of a sense of control. And instead of me saying, you need to sit there, you need to eat all that food until you're done. You know, you can't leave the table till you're done. You know, that's just, it's just making kids feel like they have no sense of control. And then that poses other issues for feeding and nutrition. And, um, you know, we've been through personally as a family, not my immediate family, but um, a family member of mine uh, that's very close to me had an eating disorder as a child and had inpatient treatment. So we are all, our whole family is very aware of how we talk about food and that, you know, and all of that, it means so much to us. And so I never want it to be a point where anything feels forced or you can't have dessert until you finish this, or, you know, I I just never want it to be that way. So that's what I love about the Ellen Satter Institute and how they kind of talk about the division of responsibility because it gives kids a way to feel control over their body, control of what they're putting in it. And it, it really sets the tone for, for the future. As little as it seems such a small thing, it really does make a big difference in the long run. And so I saw it work right before my eyes the other night. And, oh, okay, this does work. <laughs> so it's it's just validating when you when you see the, the fruits of your labor um, <laughs> actually work. Yeah, that's exactly the word I was going to use is validating. Mm-hmm. Like, oh my gosh. And it's a weight off of you too, right? I'm like, I know exactly what my job is around food Mm -hmm. and it's this. And it it also just, and if the thing is, is like, okay, if I'm offering dessert, they're gonna, and if I'm saying, do you have to eat your food and then your dessert? What's the difference? What's the difference if they have their dessert first and then eat their food? It's the same thing, you know? And so it's just giving them that choice. And then maybe next time they're not gonna be as, you know, pushy against what I'm offering, you know, cause they know mom's going to let me make decisions on my own and she's not going to force anything on me. Um, and it gives them that autonomy when it comes around food. Yeah. The whole dessert needing to deserve yeah. a seat that, and that's how, I don't remember if that's how things were when I was a kid. I mean, I was not a picky eater as a kid. I don't remember my parents having the these kind of challenges with me. Um, we did often have dessert, but I don't remember my parents ever denying my sister or I dessert for not eating. But yeah, we've had similar struggles with our our younger daughter, Harlow. She's just a, a little person. <laughs> and I think that creates a little bit of anxiety in my husband and I and thinking, and Dr. Becky talks about this, that you almost feel like you're not a good parent if your child isn't eating, right? Or they're not eating their vegetables and you feel like it's a reflection of you. I had heard of Ellen Sater years before, I think maybe from Janet Lansbury. And so just having, again, those clearly defined roles and that's something that we are working on at our in our family. It's easy to fall back into old patterns to be like, nope, you know, to take a couple more bites because you're worried yeah. because in our situation, we've had that worry that, oh, you're not, you're not eating enough, that yeah. your body isn't getting enough nutrients to function optimally, both your body and your brain. Yep. And so back. we've had that language with her, just that 
here's here's why in our family we eat fruits and vegetables and here's why we include some protein in our meals and this is what it does for your body because as a female and as a female that grew up in the world of dance eating disorders were also a very very common thing and so i also even though i don't have i never experienced an eating disorder having grew up in the dance world and having eating disorders be all around me it is in my mind that I want my girls to have a healthy, positive relationship with food. Yeah. It's, I think it goes back to when you talk about like the nutrition aspect of, uh, yeah, we just want to take one more bite, you know, all of that. It goes, I think back to that primal aspect that we talked about, like just wanting to nourish our kids yes. and we mean it in such a nice, good way. We want them to grow healthy. We want them to be well and feel good. And, um, so I, I think the premise of it is always something coming from a good part. But I think now that we have more knowledge, like, you know, you know more, you do, you do better. And so I think just kind of reflecting on that a little bit and trying to incorporate it a little bit more, because I mean, I grew up that way. I mean, my parents are, you know, you got to eat your food, you got to eat, which that's how they grew up, you know, so it is what it is. But, um, but now that I know, and now that I've seen, you know, just how, and I was a dancer too, growing up and, and had things said to me about, things that just oh, make me cringe. Um, and so it really sits with me for both my boys and my daughter, you know, both it's, yep. it's just so we see it. I see it, you know, in the clinic and kids, it's so it's hard. It's yeah. really hard. And I think, especially speaking to your point about as parents, there's so much weight we put on ourselves of, I need to feed this child like that. It, it does go to a very primal place mm -hmm. with food. We've known about this division of responsibility for food for our whole seven and a half years of being parents. And it is still something that my husband and I really struggle with because we just want what's good for them. Right. We want them to be healthy. And we have a lot, of, I have a lot of anxiety around like their nourishment. I don't, I don't even know how to explain it, but like we do our best with this uh, division of responsibility. And still, I just want to put it out there. Mm -hmm. Our kids, our oldest, especially our middle kid, he will eat a lot of things, but our oldest kid, he absolutely will not. And like, it can become such a power thing with him as he's getting older and starting to really recognize that he's got some sensory issues as well. And so that kind of layered on top of just like the anxiety about food and all this kind of stuff. It's like, it is constantly a work in progress. Yeah. which I, I know it is for both of you as well. And so I know for myself, I can sometimes fall into a trap of like, well, if I just do this, then this will be the outcome. The good thing about this division of responsibility is I only have control over this portion. I only have control over what I feed them, when I feed it to them, you know, where we eat it. And then I have no control over the outcome of whether they eat it or not. And having to let go of that is so, it's still such a work in progress for us. And I'm also like really leaning into the giving myself grace for that as well, kind of back to our earlier point, because yeah. there are just so many layers to all of it. So I'm, I'm glad that we were able to talk about food because I just think that it's so stressful for so many parents. You hit the nail on the head now. <laughs> when you, when you talked about that primal parental instinct of we need to nourish these mm -hmm. little humans that we are responsible for. There's something very 
I mean, it's it something very tricky about it goes that. to the beginning. Like when I work with my parents and newborns, I mean, it goes yes. all the way to the beginning of the pressure to nourish, you know? And yeah. so it, 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 it's really ingrained in us. And that phrase, and I know you used it before Natalie too, and it just comes to mind, like the phrase, when you know better, you do better, which is true and also not true, right? Because we all know better (laughs) and we don't always do it. And even Dr. Becky, again, Dr. Becky knows better and she doesn't always do it. So I think another big message, just that it's a process, it's a practice, Mm -hmm. right? It is not a, now I know better and I'm never gonna do it the, the wrong way, air quotes, the wrong way again. I mean, I mean, there's so, I mean, this book is, like I said, we could do hours and hours of podcasts on it. So it's like, you can, you can't put pressure on yourself to get every part of it right. Like, okay, I'm going to get the food part right today. And tomorrow I'm going to get the validation part, right? Like, you know, you can try your best in the situations you're given throughout the day, but there's so much, like I said, just, I think really just remembering, break it down, break the situation down, just get in there with your kid, connect, validate. And if that's all you remember, I think that will make a huge difference. I agree. And I think on that, that's a perfect spot for us to wrap up this conversation that, as you just said, we could go for hours, but uh, Natalie, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us about, yeah, having me. It was so fun. Natalie has a private Instagram page. So if you're interested in following her life and everything about her, it's at rooted, R-O-O-T-E-D, latch, L-A-T-C-H. Thank you guys. Thanks so much for joining us, Natalie. This was so great. So until next time, this is Read, Mama Lies, Repeat.